Unorthodox with the Angry Behavior Analyst is a relief valve for stifled thoughts, theories, and opinions related to social science. Unorthodox is unfiltered, uncensored, and most importantly, uncancelable. The Angry Behavior Analyst is all triggers, no warnings. Our education system has shifted pretty dramatically from rigorous instruction, remaining focused in the classroom on whatever lesson was being taught, and studying relentlessly to reach some sort of skill acquisition goal. The move away from the education system and any sort of rigorous or very involved time-intensive form of learning has taken a backseat to prioritizing emotional well-being and psychological safety more than anything else. Emotional well-being and psychological safety, for that matter, are important pieces of learning as it's difficult to learn especially a new difficult concept if we're in a state of heightened distress. Does that mean that learning is impossible without distress? I personally do not think so. I think that the times when we have challenged ourselves most and when we are in some level of discomfort tend to be the greatest learning experiences and lead us to the most important outcomes that build resilience within us all. With younger populations demanding psychological safety and comfort and emotional security and finding these to be more valuable than the learning itself, we not only see lowering of standards in education systems and workplaces as a whole, but we inevitably see the decline of what used to be considered typical basic life skills needed to contribute to society and effectively live on our own. In these funny clips I have for you that could very well be actors who are paid to just look incredibly stupid, I wouldn't put it past today and the education system now and the implications of that to lead to these sorts of thinking and to lead to this level, well, this lower level of intellect. In the first clip here, we have a presenter who goes around New York City asking younger people or people that appear to look younger, we're thinking maybe that Gen Z age, which we'll get to later on. He asked them very basic questions about America. I don't know if you guys remember the show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? I think these questions are more along the lines of kindergarten and first grade level. Let's hop into the first clip here. What country is the Queen of England from, originally? Um, <laughs> I definitely don't know. No, give me, give me your best guess. I guess a country. Mm. What is a country again? People have a difficult time answering the most basic of questions. And in their defense, when we first learn about concepts like countries and continents and historical time periods and even counting change. (laughs) If it's fresh in our mind as a fifth grader, of course we're going to come across as if we're smarter than some adults. A lot of adults don't use geometry 
anytime after they move into junior high. A lot of adults aren't asked to memorize specific periods in time, and they don't utilize any sorts of these timelines in their career, unless, of course, they're a history teacher or something like that. So it's not to say that everybody needs to memorize every single skill they've ever learned, but basic skills that are needed to live, like counting change and being able to pay for things that we need, this poor girl in the next clip will probably just end up using Apple Pay for the rest of her life. How many dimes make up $1? How many dimes? Yeah. Oh my God, we're doing math now? Why are you doing all the questions I can't answer? Um, Take dimes, a guess, you know dimes, this. Dimes, dimes, wait, I'm trying to remember what dimes are. Um, wait, a dollar? With our difficulty in attaining and sustaining knowledge and applying it to important areas of life, like living on our own, finding a job, maintaining a job, understanding all of the difficulties of what it means to be an employee that works for ourselves. Instead of focusing our efforts and finances on building these skills and possibly creating more individualized instruction, some states have instead lowered the standards to include everybody. The California Supreme Court recently lowered the passing score for the bar exam, making it so that nearly anybody can become a lawyer. So people that we rely on to defend us and make a case for us and also charge obscene amounts of money per hour, there's a chance that they barely scraped by because of the lowering of these standards. The reason for this change, according to many of the state law professors who encourage this move, said, unsurprisingly, it will equalize the culturally biased exam. We're finding that any exam that is difficult, the, the bar exam is notoriously difficult, it couldn't possibly be because the material is hard to learn. It couldn't possibly be because it demands a very high standard for people that are upholding the Constitution. It must be because it is culturally biased. The same thing happened in Florida a few years ago when their education department decided that they would change the entire grading curve for minority students. Because not only was the priority at that time period to try to diversify their student body, but it was also in an effort to make them feel more included. So not only bring more of them in so that we could tell people how diverse we are, but make them feel just as included as anybody that doesn't fall under a minority category. While seemingly well-intentioned, of course, we want to include people as much as we can. We want to build equality of opportunity as much as we can into our systems as we see fit. But the obsession with fairness and the obsession with equality only fosters a deep unfairness and a deep divide between people, which we will get to in depth later on. But for right now, we will stick with the achievement gap between people. It's insulting to these minority groups because it sends the message that you can't possibly achieve what a 
let's just say what a white student can achieve, you can't attain that same standard unless the standard is lowered for you. So how is that fair? What about that screams equality? To me, it just seems that we are infantilizing people in the name of wanting things to be safe, emotionally secure, and psychologically sound for everybody. Reaching complete inclusion and harping over safety versus learning and the customer is always right approach and the participation trophy for everyone, regardless of if they earned it or not, has begun to seep into other education systems and even workplace systems across the country. At a recent school board meeting in South Carolina, according to one of the teachers on staff who had been there for over a decade, she claimed that the focus was on everything except academics, saying that it was the usual mishmash alphabet soup of social and emotional well-being. Now, in the defense of social emotional well-being, with rates of anxiety and depression being higher now than an any reported time period, and with students being at school for most of their school day, it would only make sense for the people that they spend most of their time with to try to include some sort of aspect of therapy or therapeutic techniques into their day. So if instruction becomes difficult and communicating effectively is something that students struggle with, of course, we want to accommodate that to some degree through teaching. But with this school board meeting, as it went on, there was no proposed teaching for social emotional well-being. It was actually quite the opposite. The decision that was made on at a school-wide standard was students can take, take a break and leave the classroom anytime they want. Removing deadlines will only help help them succeed so that they're not bound by the pressure of having to complete something on time. And at the teacher's discretion, students can now listen to music during class. <sighs> it used to be studied at one point in time, I couldn't give you a date, so feel free to fact check me here, that listening to classical music at a low volume that wouldn't interfere with, let's say, a teacher talking actually increased your acquisition of skill or increased your acquisition of whatever was being instructed. The outcomes of this were quite variable. There weren't any substantiating claims made pointing to Mozart makes you think better or classical music makes you score higher. That was more of a social experiment to see how we could keep students engaged because engagement has been a problem in schools for quite some time, although it seems that more of those problems occur out of the fact that they're made to focus for extreme periods of time that aren't developmentally in, in line with their chronological age. But I digress. Removing standards, removing deadlines, soon we're going to remove grades. I wouldn't be surprised if that's already occurring. We infantilize people. We treat them as if there is no way they could attain what they seek to achieve by their skill set alone. 
which invalidates the entire purpose of education. The The purpose of education isn't to help people feel good. It's to teach them the skills necessary to succeed and achieve what most of us want in life, which is mastery of a skill, some sense of meaning and some sense of purpose. We can't possibly contact meaning, mastery, and purpose if everything that we are faced with is fluffy, flowery, and is more of a stand-in for rigor. It's a dazzling stand-in for rigor, I will say that. It does a great job of affirming people's insecurities, but again, that's only a band-aid fix. If you read The mission statement of a lot of institutions and educational organizations, you may begin to find the earnest language pertaining to equity or closing the racial achievement gap or bringing up racial disparity. So instead of seeking educational excellence, all of the school reformers are fixated on disparity. They are fixated on the social justice crusade of erasing disparity entirely, making the entire playing field fair by focusing and harping on this color-bound thinking, which actually doesn't achieve equity at all. It only serves to divide people into groups and pit races against each other. The problem with this sort of racialized, polarized thinking, which I will say has good intentions somewhat, is that we teach people that their their pursuit of excellence, the understanding of their own potential, will never be able to reach that of another student based on their skin color. So... It teaches learned helplessness in a lot of ways. If you are a minority student and you are being taught by these educational institutions that standards need to be specialized for you, you will eventually begin to start believing that, well, if things need to be specialized for me, it must mean because I'm incapable of achieving it on my own merit. Educational institutions are pandering to students, not only in high school settings, but in university settings. The low achievement that we see in high school that we willingly implement in an attempt towards fairness or whatever you want to call it, leads to students that lack skills, but that are getting praised for their lack of skills and enter college, probably not on their own merit, thinking that their poor skills will receive high grades. So minimal work equals gold star. Low grades means I must be at a disadvantage, which is a very, very dangerous thing to be teaching young people because they will take these same frames of mind and bring it into their place of work, which we will see in a little bit. To keep students paying, because college tuition is disgustingly high, to keep these students paying, even though they're not learning anything at all other than that they are in some sort of victim category, 
colleges are actually accommodating all of these needs. Colleges are accommodating the need for safe spaces and trigger warnings and and specialized curriculums or the use of music during class so that God forbid someone feels uncomfortable that they don't know something. They're pandering and accommodating to these students in an attempt to keep them paying their yearly tuition. Because at the same time, these woke warriors have generally gotten exactly what they strive for. We've been giving them whatever they want. They aren't challenged at all, and instead they're constantly validated. They continue to hold this moral high ground uh, in, in the name of some noble cause that they probably know next to nothing about. And despite destroying civilization hour by hour, they are still given the power to change policy. And they're a very small percentage, too. They really only make up between 7 to 10% of each political side. So we're allowing that tiny percent to take power over this entire country. And for what? The outcome isn't fairness. The outcome isn't equality of opportunity. And the outcome certainly isn't empowerment and learning. The outcome doesn't make these people feel more safe and more psychologically sound. It makes them more bitter, more needy, and more cancel conscious than any other generation. Moving beyond school, we have to wonder what these people, I hate to only harp on Gen Z, as I've said in previous episodes, but they're a really great example right now. We have to wonder what Gen Z will look like when they enter the workforce, because if they've only been fed this affirmative fodder that they can achieve whatever they want, as long as the rules apply only to them, or the rules apply only to other people and not themselves, how are these individuals going to effectively learn to work with an entire team of people with different personalities? How are they going to reach the deadlines that are a necessity at their workplace in order to cover their salary? I can't imagine that a 24-year-old who has only ever been told that their thinking is correct and nothing that they say is up for debate is ready for a quote unquote real world conversation in a professional setting. Gen Z, otherwise referred to as iGen because they are the first generation who have grown up entirely on social media and the internet. They're a group of young people. Typically I might be butchering this age range between the ages of 16 and 25. Jean Twain, a social psychologist at San Diego State, refers to them as the internet generation because of how not only the fact that they have internet in their pocket, basically walking out of the womb, but how greatly their social relationships have been impacted by social media, which hasn't been studied or even considered as a problem in previous generations. It began to be a problem maybe in the millennial generation when the iPhone came out and I want to say 2007 or 2008. And with Instagram 
blasting onto the scene in 2012, a lot of millennials latched on and glommed on immediately. So there were some millennials in here too that were, uh, I don't want to say suffering, that were experiencing similar inundation (laughs) by social media. But Twain believes that if we grow up fully online and we prioritize our digital relationships, which have a huge lack of nonverbal communication and more nuanced forms of interaction, that they're going to be so far behind emotionally and socially and even intellectually because of all of these unsupervised offline hours that any single challenge presented to them will will be perceived as overwhelming, which we see a lot uh, with the overuse of the word trauma and demanding ridiculous requirements from their place of employment. College students, specifically female college students who are just graduating out of college and entering the workforce, they report insanely high rates of anxiety and depression. And according to the Center for Collegiate Mental Health in 2017, which gathered information from 139 colleges across the country, one in seven female students considered themselves to have a psychological disorder. One in seven. That is a massive number of students that walk about their life and their day-to-day thinking that something must be neurologically or emotionally or fundamentally wrong with them. And they probably don't actually have a pathology. They may just be experiencing things that all of us do that are part of the human experience that are uncomfortable, nobody likes them, but they were never considered to be this diagnostic label up until recently when it became trendy to have a diagnostic label. Again, the customer is always right sort of approach. And these students, primarily females who are believing that they're psychologically damned, we affirm the belief that they are damned. We don't tell them, hey, you may just be going through a transitive period in your life when you move from college and having more freedom in your day to actually experiencing deadlines and rules and regulations. That's going to be difficult for someone, especially those who have never experienced that before, but it's not a glaring sign of psychological pathology or a syndrome or a disorder of some kind. But that's what we're telling people. Because along with the affirmative labels and the uh, mantras that we coo, there are also students calling for speech sanitizer to make every lesson within a school system emotion-friendly and free of anything harmful, believing that work will function in the exact same way. Gen Z, which has been quoted in a widely cited study by Barna and in partnership with Impact 360, They don't believe that education now serves to help people strive for excellence. They simply are teaching people that the right beliefs are the ones that don't hurt anybody. And this is confusing. Define harm. Define hurt. Define hate speech. Define misinformation. Who gets to define what all of these terms mean? Because to me, 
I generally consider myself pretty unoffendable and I find the most inappropriate things funny. So very few things would fall under the umbrella of harmful for me. But to another person who has grown up believing that these sorts of things are offensive to groups of people or that they're inappropriate forms of thought, they will think that those sorts of thoughts are harmful in some way because they've also been told that hate speech is violence. That speech can physically harm someone. Of course, these people are going to see the world differently. And these same mindsets are seeping, oozing. We won't even say seeping or trickling. They are oozing into professional settings. The goal in my opinion, should never be excellence for all people. I think that if you achieve excellence, that is something that you set out to achieve. I seek to achieve excellence in all domains of my life. And I hope that others achieve whatever their version of excellence is too. But if the goal, aka equality of outcome, is to just make sure everybody is excellent and everybody gets a trophy, ability levels are lost. Standards are lost. There will be no need to apply for jobs because there's no standards. There's no requirements. And if everybody is excellent, then everybody could potentially fit the bill for any sort of career. Besides really struggling with the basics of adulthood, uh, still referring to Gen Z, it can be argued that the younger millennials and the young Gen Zers or even the older Gen Zers are posing a danger to society. Now, people might say that is a histrionic view. Kayla, that is very dramatic. They're harmless. They're allowed to think whatever they want. To the last part, I would agree. We're all allowed to think whatever we want. We're all allowed to assign ourselves labels that we see fit. They might not be the most helpful or beneficial to us, but we're allowed to do it. And restricting people from doing those things doesn't help either because the whole free speech issue is kind of connected to a lot of this. But the danger that they're posing to society seems to be the notion that utopia is ideal. Perfection is the norm and anything less than is unfair. It's some sort of phobic. It's some sort of ism. And these young people want absolutely nothing to do with it. And we all know that work typically isn't fun. Work is not utopia. Work has a million and one conditions, standards, regulations that we despise, even as a business owner, even if you own a business and you believe that you get to call all of the shots, there are still people that you need to answer to, deadlines that you need to meet, and a thousand different behaviors that you need to engage in that feel like they are never ending and feel like they're not benefiting you at all. The result of this line of thinking, this pursuit of utopia versus the pursuit of excellence, is the remarkable radicalization among young groups. And by radicalization, I mean turning everything into a political issue and effectively dividing everybody into groups that are tribalistic, that see every slight or every issue as an us versus them issue versus one that we can 
put our heads together and produce some sort of viable solution, the pursuit of excellence, AKA the pursuit of fairness and equality of outcome for every single person as seen by these groups, justify their collective tantrums as noble resistance to true evil. So they believe that the popular scapegoats, racism, prejudice, capitalism, toxic masculinity, whatever else is out there, these are the roots of true evil rather than ourselves. Because there's true evil within all of us. That's what it means to be human. And if we could find a way to, one, recognize that we are the culprit a lot of the time in our own suffering, and two, it's nobody else's responsibility to mitigate that for the, for us, we would be a lot better off. And professionally, we would be a lot better off. Because 100% inclusivity is impossible. Not only is it impossible... It's completely unrealistic. These plans to try to contort and twist and modify and manipulate admission criteria and job hiring criteria to make sure that every single person has an equal shot, even those that are unqualified or even undeserving of it, on the surface level, it's a great way to amplify underrepresented people which is the priority in 2022 for everything. But this plan is foolish. This plan is foolish because the lowering of standards and giving everybody a participation trophy for merely breathing will lead to surgeons lowering their standards and turning out like Dr. Death, butchering people. It will lead to therapists that have no understanding of themselves versus, uh, let alone being able to help other people that see them for things like depression and anxiety and school systems that only want to make sure their kids are safe and teachers whose job it is to emotionally babysit versus actually teach. We've gone not only from raising a generation that expect our, a participation trophy, we're beyond that now. I, I misspoke when I, when I said that a few times. I think we're beyond the participation trophy. What I think we're at is that we don't want a trophy. We want first place all of the time, no matter what. The participation trophy no longer is important or valuable to us. Because if we can't be in first place, even if we don't deserve it, then we want nothing to do with it. One of my favorite authors, Greg Lukianoff, he wrote The Coddling of the American Mind, which I have referenced probably 15 times across <laughs> these last few episodes, dives it super in depth into the rot of education and safetyism and how a lot of these deranged lines of thinking can have really adverse effects on society. In the video clip that we're about to play in an episode that was with Dr. Phil, where uh, baby boomers were kind of interviewing, but more having a public discussion with Gen Zers. And they were talking about, is Gen Z too sensitive? Is Gen Z lazy? Do our baby boomers too rigid in their thinking? 
And Dr. Phil asks Greg Lukianoff what he believes is the ultimate demise of Gen Z. And he does point out, which I agree with, it isn't necessarily Gen Z's fault. It's our fault. This generation, you talk about being coddled. What do you mean by that? Well, it's kind of funny. I'm not a big fan of the title of my own book. I wanted to call it Disempowered because the argument we're making is that we have taught uh, the younger generation, particularly Gen Z, the mental habits of anxious and depressed people. And therefore, we shouldn't actually be surprised that, that we have a genuine mental health crisis. I mean, we're talking about a 109% increase um, in suicide uh, for boys from 2010 to, 20, to 2020, and 134% increase in suicide between 2010 uh, and, and, and 2020 for girls. And, I th and to be clear, I actually think this is, this is our fault. Um, and I, one of the things we recommend in the book is the is learning from the wisdom of cognitive behavioral therapy because the the dis dysfunctional way of thinking where you exaggerate the dangers when you catastrophize when you overgeneralize that's the, ha the that is a formula for an unhappy life when we teach people skills that ultimately make them unhappy but we repackage it as revolutionary we lead to professionals that are obsessed with the concept of things like work-life balance or avoiding imposter syndrome or avoiding burnout or mitigating burnout. These are very popular words right now. And in the, in the business sense, you would be very smart to use these words. People are raking it in hand over fist, claiming that they are helping people achieve work-life balance, which I personally don't believe is actually attainable in the sense that it's being portrayed. Obviously, working insane hours, being asked to be on call 24-7, the increasing demands of wherever you work that could very well be unattainable for a lot of people and could contribute to adverse mental health effects, of course those are going to interfere pretty tremendously with your personal life and your personal responsibilities. And if you find that you're in a career or a job where you're unable to uphold all of your personal responsibilities and your personal life is suffering because of your job, then sure, that would absolutely lend a hand to some introspection, introspection and wanting to understand how we could live a more balanced life in regards to our job and our personal, our personal life. How work-life balance is portrayed now is a perfect 50-50 ratio of each one that very similar to the show Severance. I'm not sure if my audience here has listed or watched Severance on Apple TV. It, the plot is that people go to work and as soon as they leave work at, let's just say they work a nine to five, they get in an elevator at 5 PM and something happens in this elevator where their brain switches off and their personal life and their work life are completely segmented entities that don't affect each other at all. So the people who know each other in the office by name, if they were to see each other after leaving this weird brain elevator after 5 p.m., they wouldn't recognize their coworkers because essentially they're kind of two different people, which makes you think, how can we function effectively if two huge domains of our life and our psyche are that separate? Is it realistic to think 
that our personal responsibilities and our after work wants and needs perfectly balance out the demands and responsibilities of our job. Especially if we're working in a career or a job that is in line with our passion to a degree, or it's something that we find meaning and value and purpose in, that tends to trickle into all sorts of areas of our personal life. As a business owner, it never stops. It's very enjoyable a lot of the time, but there is no real definitive line between I am working right now and I am personal lifing right now. They all seem to mesh together. Ultimately, it's on us if we find that one is more balanced than the other. But let's, for the sake of this theory, assume that we are able to achieve a severance style balance. So 50% work and 50% personal life. If work in its 50% goes perfectly and we do everything we need to do, what if as soon as we enter the 50% of our personal life, our child is sick. What if we get sick? What if somebody dies? What if our car won't start? There goes your balance. And by harping on, laser focusing on, and prioritizing balance over anything else, any setback will feel like a huge hit to our ego. It'll feel like something that we're not able to overcome because we're not building up our tolerance and our flexibility. Instead, we're actually building rigidity when all we want is this perfect ratio of work-to-life balance. The same goes for boundary setting within work settings. That's another popular one. There are actually boundary setting coaches now who teach young professionals how to set boundaries with their place of work. Boundaries are an important skill to, setting boundaries is an incredibly important skill to learn. It's something that's necessary if we are to establish for ourselves what we want our life to be and what we want our relationships to be. That being said, boundary setting is now becoming, I'm going to set a boundary in front of anything that I dislike. Anything that isn't perfectly in line with my values, I am going to avoid it, but repackage it as boundary setting. Almost half of Gen Z and even millennials reported that they would rather be unemployed than unhappy in a job. So they would rather collect unemployment pay than suffer even in the slightest through something that they dislike, which can only tell you that they probably aren't responsible for many bills. Because if you have bills and you live by yourself and you are responsible for your own finances, a lot of us don't have the option of being able to live off of unemployment. A majority of these same people that were surveyed said that they put their personal happiness over work, which is fine. One of the things that we're all going to take into account when we choose a career path or choose a job is, will this make me miserable? Some of us have to choose something that makes us miserable for financial or personal reasons. But generally, I don't think being content in a job or finding a job that's tolerable is a completely unrealistic request. It becomes very unrealistic when we try to 
take full control over every aspect of our job in pursuit of happiness. Happiness is a fleeting concept as it is. Happiness can occur in spurts. We can feel very happy when great things happen. We feel senses of joy, but attaining happiness and attaining or striving for happiness and work-life balance, again, leads to very rigid thinking. And it leads to these younger people who want every single aspect of their job to fall under their jurisdiction. And according to a Gen Z individual, I'm a hard worker, but I'm not going to work if I'm forced to. This sounds like someone who doesn't have to worry about bills. <laughs> this sounds like someone who lives with their mom and dad in mom and dad's basement. Because if you feel like, eh, I don't feel like doing this today, I'm not, I'm just not going to. A lot of us don't have the luxury of doing that. People take breaks to, to move in with families as they're going through a transition period with work. That's completely normal. That's completely acceptable. I did the exact same thing. But the fallback that is, I don't like this, so I don't have to work. Very dangerous form of thinking, very dangerous thing to be teaching young people who don't know anything else. And the shock of the real world and the shock of, hey, work-life balance may not actually be attainable can set people back psychologically in so many ways that make them feel even more out of control, make them shut down further and probably even further dampen the motivation to work in general. If we foster these sort of settings where instead of focusing on imposter syndrome or normalizing imposter syndrome or you go girl, you're doing great. What if we looked towards developing flexibility the same way we do in our clients? What if we looked at instilling some sort of resilience and the expectation that there will be fluctuation and variability in our lives and it won't always be fun and it may be very prolonged, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything is wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're not achieving what we set out to or that we're not engaging in meaningful, purposeful work. There's a new term swirling around called quiet quitting. I had to Google quiet quitting, um, but all of us kind of know what it means now. And it is the only doing the bare minimum in pursuit of the work-life balance that we talked about. The reality of work in many circumstances, I can't speak to other fields, but the reality of work in the majority of circumstances is that your job and your responsibility really can't be defined in this formal job description alone. It might start as the responsibilities and duties of a behavior analyst are XYZ, the requirements of a uh, you know an, an IT person are XYZ. But naturally, part of our job means that other tasks and duties will come up that don't neatly fall into our contract. Now, does that mean we say, that's not in my contract, I'm not doing that? I hear that more and more now, but I also don't think that's fair to employers. These employers are paying us to do our job. And 
when leaders find themselves unable to manage these people that demand everything be perfectly aligned with what's in writing, the quiet quitters are actually posing more of a challenge and detrimental financial um, hit to employers than if they quit altogether. Losing employees costs places a lot of money. We don't really talk about very often how much money they're losing when people quit because we're very focused on the revolving door itself and the burnout that leads to people leaving. But there's also the aspect of people who quiet quit, AKA they do everything that's required of them from nine to five. And then at 501, they completely separate themselves from work. It used to be encouraged to go the extra mile. It used to be admirable to go beyond what was required of you. And I understand to a degree where if the employer shows you that they really don't value your work, but they value how much money you bring in, yes, you're not necessarily going to be motivated to go the extra mile because you probably won't be recognized for it. But what if this was another perspective shift? What if this was something that we could see as I feel good about the fact that I am putting in extra work in pursuit of XYZ? What if me going the extra mile does something for me personally? If we can understand that this helps us personally, instead of constantly relying on the external validation or a great performance review or a Starbucks gift card from our employer, then their lack of recognition will, won't even register as a blip on our radar. We could feel good about the fact that we are doing the best job that we possibly can. As we wrap up, I'm going to read a quote by Benjamin Franklin that he wrote to Samuel Johnson. Nothing is of more importance to the public than to form and train up youth in wisdom and virtue. Wise and good men are, in my opinion, the strength of a state, much more so than riches or arms, which, under the management of ignorance and wickedness, often draw on destruction instead of providing for the safety of a people. We here at Unorthodox are trying to provide education and wisdom and cultivation of critical thought. And if we can play any part in educating younger generations more wisely by building grit, building resilience, and prioritizing rigor over safety, they will not only be more virtuous, more strong, and more equipped for the world, but they will actually be safer than ever. 